Congratulations to our new group of residents, Amelia Martinez-Lopez, Amardeep Singh Cheta, Cecilia Selena Covenas, Fun Milau Helen Idemudia, Lisette Imbert Matos, Sue Miat Lane, Timmy Don Yomi, and Young Na Sang. This group of residents will start in July 2021 and will graduate in July 2024. We hope you enjoy your time with us. Now, on to episode 45, an update on osteoporosis. Today is March 22nd, 2021. This is the Monday after the match. So this is pre-recorded. Congratulations. We know that you're going to do great in our program. And today we're going to talk about pacemakers and defibrillators to start this episode. Implanted pacemakers and defibrillators are equipped with a switch that responds to magnetic forces to stop them from to stop them when we when needed. Magnetic interference between these cardiac implantable electronic devices CIEDs and mobile devices have been investigated for years. It has been established that magnetic fields stronger than 10 gauss can deactivate these cardiac devices, causing pacemakers to give asynchronous pacing and ICDs to stop tachyarrhythmia detection. The Heart Rhythm Society Journal, published in October 2009, that was 11 years ago, an association between portable headphones and significant electromagnetic interference, what they call EMI in patients with implantable cardioverter defibrillators or ICDs and pacemakers. A hundred patients were tested with different portable headphones. Headphones deactivated implanted devices when held at two centimeters from the left anterior skin surface, and there was no interference when headphones were placed farther than three centimeters. In this study, normal functioning of the devices was restored in 29 out of 30 cases when the headphones were removed from the patient's chest. The recommendation from that study was to recommend patients to keep their portable headphones at least three centimeters away from their implanted devices. Interesting. So it was only on the left side of their chest. So more recently, in January 2021, the same journal posted the effect of iPhone 12 on ICD's deactivation. And this actually was a letter to the editor. So it was not like a, a serious article, but it was an, a letter to from a li- uh, reader of the journal. And, um, you know, iPhone 12 has a new technology uh, to charge it very fast, wireless. Um, and the technology is called MagSafe, which are the, these new chargers that they have. I don't have one, so I don't know how it looks like. <laughs> but iPhone 12 deactivated a Medtronic ICD when tested by a group of investigators in a patient. Wow. The official Apple support website posted on February 25th, 2021, to avoid any potential interactions with these devices, keep your iPhone and MagSafe accessories at a safe distance away from your device, more than 6 inches or 15 centimeters apart, or more than 12 inches or 30 centimeters apart if wirelessly charging. I was just telling Dr. Ariasa, so you cannot answer your phone and put it in between your head and your um, shoulder. shoulder because that might not even be 15 centimeters and you might deactivate your device. Um, other devices such as fitness tracker, wristbands, and even e-cigarettes have been involved in the activation of ICDs. Wow. 
the activation, okay? So the bottom line of this uh, introduction is make sure your patients discuss with you or their cardiologist before buying wearable or mobile technology that may interfere with their implanted cardiovascular devices. This is Rio Bravo Q Week, your weekly dose of knowledge brought to you by the Rio Bravo Family Medicine Residency Program from Bakersfield, California. Our program is affiliated with UCLA and sponsored by Clinica Sierra Vista. Let us be your healthcare home. The secret of getting ahead is getting started. Mark Twain. Hello, listeners. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Rio Bravo Q Week, and we're very happy to have Dr. Linares with us today. She's a wonderful physician that works for Clinica Sierra Vista, and she comes to our clinic on Wednesdays, one Wednesday a month, and we really enjoy working with her. So her name is Maria Linares. So Dr. Linares, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Aviasa. Hello, everybody. Thanks for <laughs> taking my call. I know it's a little late today, but... Uh, I know that you are willing to share your knowledge with us, and, and I'm very happy for that. So Thank you. Thank I, you for the invitation. I, w- I would like to, to know a little bit about you and to let all the listeners know who you mm-hmm. are. So who are you, Dr. Linares? <laughs> um, so I'm the endocrinologist here at Clinica. I was hired about a year and a half ago, so it's been a while. And I'm from Peru. I trained there and I did my residency and fellowship training at um, Mount Sinai Medical Center and then University of Miami and Jackson Memorial Hospital. So it's a it's a change to be here, but it's um, it's certainly been wonderful and I'm very happy mm-hmm. to work with with the residents too and with you guys and you know I'm learning as we go too. This is you know the first time I'm working out of fellowship, so. That's great. It's, it's great. So <laughs> I, I remember like a couple of years ago, maybe three years ago, we were like, we were dreaming. We were like, oh, I wish we had an endocrinologist <laughs> until my dream came to reality. So I'm glad that you no are way. here working with us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm here. I'm very so glad. Very as, excited. as you can see, we work a lot with uh, patients. With, uh, you know, our population has a lot of diabetes. And mm-hmm, uh, so mm-hmm. I'm very glad that you're helping us with that. Because sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, we try our best, but still the A1C is double digits, <laughs> you know, <laughs> until you come aboard and, and you help us. So I'm thankful for that. And, of uh, course. But today we're not <laughs> going to talk about diabetes because, uh, you know, we can leave it for another day. But we, I, I wanted to, share, uh, to talk to you or talk with you about uh, osteoporosis because there is a new guideline that came out last year from the mm-hmm. AACE and the ACE, which mm-hmm. I assume is American College of Endocrinologists. And mm-hmm. um, so, and I just wanted to talk about that with you and to hear some um, input from, from the specialist point of view, but of course, mm-hmm. um, directed to our residents and to our primary care providers. So we, um, we I have the, the guidelines in front of me, but okay. I, want, I want to ask you some questions. Um, about osteoporosis and mm-hmm. uh, mostly that related to primary care. I wanted to ask you more uh, about DEXA scan. You know, DEXA scan yeah. is something that we do in primary care after our patients, our female patients are 
uh, 65 years and older. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to hear from you. When will you consider to do a DEXA scan in a patient who is younger than 65? Yes, so um, it's interesting in the osteoporosis world, there's a lot of clinical guidelines and a lot of like associations that have opinions about when to test, how to treat, but um, generally we follow and, and for primary care doctors as well as myself, we generally follow the recommendations from the National Osteoporosis Foundation. And for everybody that's, um, for postmenopausal women that are younger than 65, um, meaning, or, you know, in the, in the perimenopausal transition, and also in men, don't forget about men too, men between 50 and 70 years old, oh, um, okay. for patients, you know, in that category with any clinical risk factor for fracture, uh -huh. we would uh, order a DEXA scan. So clinical risk factors are, um, for example, current smoking, not remote smoking, but current smoking, excessive alcohol intake, patients that are very underweight, you know, with a BMI that's less than 20, um, patients with family history, like direct family history of osteoporotic fractures, um, patients with that use steroids for more than three months. Mm -hmm. um, and then anybody else that you would think is taking a medication for um, that could cause secondary osteoporosis. So like aromatizing inhibitors, um, men that with prostate cancer that, you know, take antiandrogenic medications that make them hypogonadal, stuff like that. Then inflammatory conditions too are, are um, things like rheumatoid arthritis or SLE, dermatomyositis. All of these inflammatory conditions are high risk. Mm -hmm. So you would also do a DEXA scan on these patients. And obviously patients that are fracturing. So any adult that's fracturing after the age of 50 uh -huh. should get a DEXA scan. Um, okay. You are gonna, you know, that's another concept. How do, how do we define osteoporosis? It's not just by DEXA scan, right? We define osteoporosis clinically if someone is fracturing or if someone, um, more than defining osteoporosis, but um, people with osteopenia that would benefit from pharmacologic therapy, we use the FRAC score, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have a patient that I actually sent to you. It's a patient mm -hmm. with a prater willi syndrome mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I remember, remember that uh, one of the recommendations was to do a dexa scan on him too yeah yeah mm. so hypogonadal patient right mm -hmm. so, so yeah. very high risk don't forget about men so the recommendation is also to do dexa scans um, in any woman above the age of 65 but also in men above the age of 70. okay well, that's um, good to know. That's good to remind mm -hmm. to to be reminded of, because yeah, we always think yeah. about women, but we we forget about men. So, definitely, definitely. So uh, when we get the report back, you know, we see mm -hmm. a lot of uh, reports that say only like osteopenia, osteopenia, mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. the T score is between uh, minus one to minus two point five. So, um, can you give us some recommendations on what to do? in those cases, especially with vitamin D and calcium? Uh, right. So the nutritional benefit of vitamin D and calcium, um, interestingly, I'm going to say it's actually a little bit controversial. Um, 
Calcium and vitamin D are obviously necessary for bone formation, and the bone needs a, a good amount of vitamin D and calcium around it to, to you know, proliferate. Um, but there were studies done where, you know, women and old men were getting a bunch of calcium and vitamin D supplements, and that didn't necessarily translate in, in a reduction of fractures in some of those studies. Some studies did. So, in general, most of the guidelines are, you know, the, the recommendation is not clear. What everybody knows is that we should try to optimize nutritional intake of calcium and vitamin D as much as possible. And if even with that, your vitamin D levels are less than 30, you should try to supplement. Mm -hmm. um, generally, the recommendation is 1,000 to 2,000 units daily. Mm -hmm. And for calcium, generally, the recommendation is around 1,000 or 1,200 milligrams of calcium. Um, per day, out of which most of it should come from dietary sources. Oh, great. So, most of it. And, and it's, so the recommendation or the requirements would be the same in a, like a normal patient and a patient with osteopenia, or do they have to be different? Okay, right. So for osteopenia patients, the recommendation is not clear. This recommendation is actually for people that are going to be treated with pharmacological, okay. um, with medication. Everybody that's going to get treated should have an optimal level of vitamin D and calcium. For the osteopenic patients, those who are going to get treated, for sure, they receive the same recommendations. But those that are you think are not going to benefit from pharmacologic therapy, mm -hmm. honestly, you should just optimize their dietary intake until there's more data. Because right now the data is actually a bit controversial. There's, as you probably know, there's the calcium score for uh, our cardiology. Um, you know, cardiology part or the area. Mm -hmm. um, there are some studies saying that if you um, encourage the intake of calcium, you know, as supplements, would that imply also an increased risk of, you know, cardiovascular um, events? That is also controversial. So mm, that's interesting. In any case, in any case, for your patients that are going to be treated, or for those who you think are going to benefit from pharmacologic therapy for osteoporosis, for sure. You have to supplement if needed. Make sure you 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 know you take a look at what the vitamin D levels are. Okay, um, so and optimize. Let's repeat the vitamin D recommendation, the dose, and the calcium. So vitamin D, you say between one thousand and two thousand, and calcium. One thousand to two thousand. Uh -huh. And and calcium should be twelve hundred um, milligrams daily. Okay. Out of which most of it should come out from dietary sources. So okay. you know, milk products, yogurt, cheese. That's great. So um, mm -hmm. now I want to talk about the FRAX score because I was actually surprised that, um, you know, a primary care provider, um, you know, we were talking about the FRAX score and that the provider mm -hmm. didn't know about mm -hmm. it. So can you tell me what the FRAX score is? Yes. So um, the FRAX score came to uh, be used around the late, two, I'm going to say 2008. Um, and it it's basically a tool that came to be out of a question of the patients with osteopenia, how do we decide when to treat them? Mm -hmm. Because it turns out that when they did the studies, the retrospective studies, they found that the bulk of osteoporotic fractures were actually happening on patients with osteopenia. Um, you know, we know that the osteoporotic people um, deserve pharmacologic therapy because they have a high risk of, of fractures 
but the majority of these pressures are actually happening also feeding people. And these people were generally the ones that had some sort of risk factor. So the FRAC score essentially, um, it's a tool, it's called the Fracture Risk Assessment Tool. Mm -hmm. And it, it, you know, you can find it online, it's free, you just, you know, write FRAC score and you will uh, find a scoring system where you just click, you know, things like age, weight, history, family history of fractures, um, you know, some sort of like clinical risk factors for mm -hmm. uh, risk factors for fractures. Mm -hmm. And then it also asks you to, to put the femoral neck bone mineral density if you have it. Uh -huh. So if the patient has already had a DEXA scan, um, you can input the BMD from the femoral neck. If you don't have it, Mm -hmm. You can still calculate the FRAC score. And then it gives you a percentage. Mm -hmm. um, it, and it defines the thresholds for high risk um, of fractures in the 10-year probability of hip fracture or combined major osteoporotic fracture. So for hip fracture, to say that you are going to put a patient on therapy, that 10-year probability should be more than three. Okay. Three percent. Okay. More than three percent, and for the combined major osteoporotic fracture, um, the ten-year probability should be more than twenty for you to say that you're going to put them on pharmacological therapy. Okay, so a ten-year major osteoporotic fracture more than twenty percent, and the hip fracture more than three percent. Okay, so yeah. and that means that you're going to put the patient on vitamin D, calcium, and probably by phosphonates. Right. And probably, exactly, probably depending on the risk, um, you're going to decide which one of the osteoporotic medications to start using. Okay, that's great. So before we go to the pharmacologic options, so mm -hmm. um, we have to rule out any causes of secondary osteoporosis. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you what recommendations you have for us um, mm -hmm. to do like a workup of... Um, you know, to rule out any cause of secondary osteoporosis before we send the patient to you. So what okay. recommendations you have there? Um, so for most patients that are going to be screened, which are patients that are 65 and older, or 65 and older in women and more than 70 in men, most of them are most likely um, osteoporotic because they're postmenopausal. Mm -hmm. So in general, they're not going to require any secondary um, causes workup. But for younger people, um, especially younger than 50 years old or you know, people that are premenopausal, there are conditions that you are going to try to work up. In general, for the primary care office, um, what I would look for is malabsorption um, diseases, things okay. like celiac disease um, or patients that are maybe post-surgical from a bariatric surgery. Um, I would probably, you guys are very good at uh, checking for thyroid disorders. Remember that hyperthyroidism also increases bone loss. Okay. And it's very easy to also um, order a PTH, okay. right, for hyperparathyroidism if you see a calcium that's elevated. So, you know, in the primary care office, those are the ones that I would expect. Okay. Obviously, a CDC and a CMP to look for um, kidney disease, liver disease, and potential hematologic malignancies. Um, those are basic labs. 
what I would do in the office would be some more like zebras, right? Like looking for mastocytosis or uh, multiple myeloma, stuff like that. Okay. Okay, so it would be like a CBC, CMP, TSH, PTH. Okay, so those are good. Um, yeah. Those are like routine labs and pretty much in primary care, so that's good. So after we uh, decide that we didn't find any, you know, any secondary cause, so we're going to start now with the pharmacologic therapy. So we decided that the patient is osteoporotic or has osteopenia mm -hmm. and uh, with a high risk of fractures. Uh, in mm -hmm. the next 10 years. So I see in the in the guidelines, they have two groups. So they divide patients in two, into two groups. There's mm -hmm. a high-risk group with yep. no prior factors, and there's a very high-risk with prior factors or prior. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So those are the two main groups. And then how do you decide, um, you know, which agent or which medications to use in each group? So the biggest change in the pharmacological therapy for osteoporosis has been the introduction of anabolic therapy. Um, in the past, and the medications that we have the more data on are anti-resorptive medications, basically biphosphonates, you know, things like alendronate or ibandronate or um, um, resedronate, uh, all of the, you know, Soledronic acid, etc. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of data for biphosphonates. These are anti-resorptive medications. Um, but then the anabolics are, are medications that, you know, they form bone. If you have a low bone mineral density, you can see in the follow-up DEXs that you're actually going to see a higher bone mineral density. So mm -hmm. it turns out that when you compare them head to head, the um, reduction of of fracture risk is much greater with anabolic therapy. The first anabolic medication that came to the market was um, um, Forteo, also called Teriparatai, okay. which is an injectable medication. And we, this is a PTH analog. Um, and then the next one that came to the market, I think I'm going to say four or five years ago, was Timlo, also called Avaloparatai. This is a PTHRP analog. And they're both the most common anabolic medications to use. Um, and then most recently, and the reason for the update for the guidelines that were published last year was Remososumab, also called Avenity. So Remososumab is by far the most potent anabolic medication out there. And it has the probably the strongest data on fracture risk reduction. So it's what you would say the most potent medication out there. And for patients with high risk, you obviously, with very high risk, you obviously want to give them the best medication out there, the best you can offer. And the problem was that these medications are very, very expensive. So for many years, you know, primary care offices haven't really had access to this type of medications, and it's been more or less reserved to the endocrinologist or for a very you know, small period, a small um, portion of patients. But now with this update and in, in, in the guideline, they're trying to make them more, you know, popular. They're actually putting them as first line on patients that are very high risk. So mm -hmm. hopefully that you know introduces the the medication to more and more people. Wow. What you were saying is that the guideline div, uh, divides people um, that are going to benefit from pharmacologic therapy into two groups: the very high risk uh, group, which are patients that 
have had a recent fragility fracture in the last 12 months. Uh, patients that are fracturing while they're on therapy. So let's say someone is already in a lendronate for three years and they develop a spinal uh, fracture. Those are very high risk fracture risk. Uh, patients that are having multiple fractures, someone who's had two spinal fractures and they just had a hip fracture, very high risk. Um, patients that are developing fractures from uh, prolonged use of steroids, those are very dangerous fractures. And then patients with a T-score that is very severely um, decreased, less than minus three, mm -hmm. or patients that have a FRAG score for major osteoporotic fracture um, risk more than 30% or hip fracture more than 4.5%. So all of these patients, you would put them in the category of very high fracture risk. And these patients are the people that would benefit from anabolic therapy. Great. It's also true that um, medications like uh, soledronic acid, which is the strongest biphosphonate out there, or prolia, also called the nosumab, which is also an anti-resorptive medication, very, very strong, probably the strongest anti-resorptive medication out there. All of those medications are still first line, but again, what, I'm, what I think the guidelines are trying to do is introducing the idea of anabolic therapy as first line, which in the past was you know, unthinkable because these medications are so expensive. The insurances always ask you to um, have the patients fail alendronate or, or any biphosphonates before they are going to commit to paying mm -hmm. thousands of dollars on something like, you know, for or things. So uh, are um, you are you able, Dr. Linares, to give these medications in your clinic if I send you a patient? Or good question. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, I, we have a, I have a patient who has um, who had a fracture already and uh -huh. uh, she actually has a uh, an ulcer on the esophagus. So the GI doctor told her to stop the alendronate that mm -hmm. she was taking. So yeah. and then she's um, stuck because she's taking her calcium and vitamin D, but I feel that she needs, uh, you know, the medications yeah. that you're mentioning. All those, uh, the ones that are reserved for people very high risk or for with prior fractures. So right now you are not able to provide those uh, infusions so, in your clinic? Um. So it's difficult with um, COVID. Uh -huh. the, the reps for all of these medications are very difficult to, all of these medications are so expensive. You need a rep to, you know, start calling insurances and to hopefully have a contract mm -hmm. because the people that we're seeing in the clinic are either uninsured people or people who have medical or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so it's difficult to get them. I have been able to um, prescribe both Timlas and Corteo, which are avaloparatide and teriparatide. Okay. Um, these are pens. They come just like insulin pens. Uh -huh. Patients inject them daily. Um, so it's, it's a lot of work for the patient, especially if they have never injected anything. Um, so those are, those are, uh, they're not IV then, they are like subcutaneous? Sub-Q. And then I have not been able to prescribe Ramososhumab, which is the newest one, the Azanity, um, basically because of logistics. It, it's an injection, it's subcutaneous injection, but it's monthly. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's nowhere in the pharmacies here for it to be in stock 
the the representative needs to actually come locally and start okay. um, talking to some people. But I'm sure you know in the future, hopefully with these guidelines and you know people like me and endocrinologists asking for it, we can start getting it. You know, for people here. Yeah. So and then uh, after you start the medication, we have to reassess every year to see if there is any response to therapy in fracture risk. So how can you um, assess the response? Is it a DEXA scan that you have to do? Or there are some bone to over markers. So what do you um, exactly do? Right, so the monitoring and follow-up, um, more often than not, the rule is that you're gonna do a DEXA scan either a year or two years after you start therapy. Um, the bone turnover markers are still a little bit controversial. You can use them to define someone with very high risk. If you have very, very high um, bone turnover markers, the CTX, for example, that is a marker of resorption. Um, if those are very, very high, it means you're losing a lot of bone. Mm -hmm. And you can say this patient is probably high risk. He's losing um, bone in a rapid rate. We should put them on something like that an anabolic or a very strong anti-resorptive. Um, but more often than not, the insurances don't like paying it, one. Um, and two, we more the most most of the data is on uh, follow-up. So let's say you have um, a patient that you're you're putting on a by the way, the the measurement of bone turnover markers probably works best on patients that are on bifosphonate. Okay. So um, because they're supposed, the CTX, which is a resorption um, marker, it's supposed to be very, very suppressed if you put them on an anti-resorptive, right? Something mm -hmm. like bifosphonate or probably. Mm -hmm. So if you're concerned about a patient, um, let's say they're uh, post-bariatric surgery or they have celiac disease, you're concerned about the absorption of alendronate and you want to make sure that they're actually absorbing the medication and that is working, it's a good idea. It's a good idea to get a CTX to see how suppressed the the turnover marker is. And if it's not suppressed, then you can say, well, it turns out that this patient is really not absorbing the right phosphonate, and you may want to change to you know an IV medication or whatnot. Um, also for non-compliance, you know, sometimes you're concerned about the patient taking the medication, or you know, coming. Um, there's a lot of non-compliant patients with alendronate, right? It's a very difficult medication to take. So some you are one of some people there. Some people forget it. it. Yeah. <laughs> for yeah. sure, for sure. So that's when I've personally used the the CTX. The other bone turnover markers, which are of bone formation, um, those I I have never used them in in clinica. I've never ordered them, so I'm not sure what the you know, the coverage situation for that. And basically the only reason why I would use them is if I'm using anabolic therapy and I'm trying to follow that up, seeing if that's working. But it's not it's not a standard of care. Okay, so Dr. Um, Linares, sorry that I'm, for the ignorance, but CTX, is that like a blood test that you do? Is it, what is the it's a, yes. Yeah, it's a blood test. It's called uh, carbox, carboxy terminal collagen crosslinks. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's a uh, you can measure that after you start treatment after one year or two years and see if the patient yeah. is responding well. Okay. 
So we'll bypass from it. According to mm-hmm. the guidelines here, if the patient is not responding well, then that means that probably you have to switch the patient to an injectable or... Um, yeah. If the patients are not responding well. So if you do a DEXA scan and the T-score has worsened, Mm-hmm. Meaning that you haven't stabilized the bone loss, then you can say um, that they're losing more bone and that the medication is probably not as effective as it should be. Mm-hmm. So at that point, you want to escalate therapy. So if you've been on an oral biphosphonate, you would probably escalate to an IV biphosphonate or to the nosumab. And if they're losing a lot of bone, if they're, for example, more than just having a lower T score, but they're fracturing on therapy, which is what we say for a very high-risk patient, maybe you want to transition them from alendronate to an anabolic. Okay. Um, so success treatment is when you maintain stability on bone loss. Mm-hmm. If they started with a T-score of minus 7, that it stays minus 7, I'm sorry, minus 2.7, that it stays at minus 2.7 for the five years that you're going to have them on alendronate or or whatnot. Okay, um, so after the, the, then that's when you consider a drug holiday, right? After five years of oral and right. stable, and or after three years of IV mm-hmm. therapy. Okay, so this, uh, uh-huh. yeah, the drug holiday idea is remember only for bisphosphonates oh, okay. um, medication, and the reason for that is on the studies where they use bisphosphonates for a very long time, more than ten years in. Um, alendronate in oral biphosphonates or more than six years in saladronic acid, they started to in- have increased risk of atypical fractures mm-hmm. and uh, osteonecrosis of the jaw. So, so and what, to, and what is that exactly, a drug holiday? Like how long or wh- why is it exactly? Usually it's about one or two years, and that's another uh, reason to get bone turnover markers. Um, Biphosphonate should stay in your body active in your bone for about one to two years after you stop therapy. So even if the patient stopped using alendronate today, you can still see that they're protected for the next couple of years, more or less. Um, You can take a look at that, you know, doing bone turnover markers every three, six months. And if they continue to be suppressed, you can continue to say their biphosphonate is still working. As soon as the bone turnover markers start trending up again, you can say, hey, I need to stop the holiday and put this patient on therapy. Um, most of the times, you have to put the patient on therapy regardless after the two years, even if you don't have access to bone turnover markers. Um, because remember that osteoporosis is not a curable disease. You need to treat it for the rest of the patient's life. Okay. And, and that's also introducing the concept of what's the sequence of medication. Right. If for alendronate, the max amount of years you can use it is 10 years. What are you going to do after those 10 years? Do you put them on an anabolic? Do you put them on prolia? Do you continue alendronate indefinitely? So that's that's a bigger talk and something that we're probably going to have to talk about in the next time. Yeah. Um, and we probably I think at that time, I think we would probably send that patient to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Also, if you have a patient that has osteoporosis mm-hmm. and you're not comfortable or you're, you know, you're concerned that they're very high risk and you want to be able to offer them the best available therapy, which is indeed anabolics, then you have to 
um, understand that you have to refer the patient. Yeah. That yeah. is also part of standard of care. And that's why we're so happy to have you, Dr. Linares, because I feel <laughs> like you're going to help our patients a lot. And I know um, you have given us very important information here. So, and I'm very thankful that you were able to answer the phone today. And uh, I forgot to ask you the random question. So don't think that I forgot. A random question. Yeah, I have a <laughs> random question for you. So what was the most, what is the most memorable vacation that you have had in your life? It's a very difficult random question. <laughs> um, I'm going to say, and this is probably because I'm very homesick because I haven't seen my family in, in over a year. Oh. Um, the one time that we all, my entire family, mom, dad, and my two brothers, we went to kind of like this 20 day trip through three countries in Europe, which was incredibly exhausting, but also, you know, it increases the bonding kind of like situation between all of us. So I, yeah, I'm going to say that's the most epic. That sounds like <laughs> a lot of fun. Trip. Yeah, it was fun. It was very stressful too. <laughs> yeah. so, just like any family yeah and then um, you know people when they hear Peru all they see all they remember is uh, Machu Picchu you know Machu Picchu everybody wants to go to Machu Picchu have you been in Machu Picchu I've been there several times and oh, it nice. is as pretty as it you know it looks in the pictures but Peru is it's so so much bigger um, than just Machu Picchu, but by all means, go go to Machu Picchu as soon as as soon as you all can. Yeah, one of these days for sure. Hopefully Thank you soon. so much, Dr. Linares. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for um, having uh, this conversation with me, and we'll keep in touch with you. And please keep coming to our clinic at least once a month. Okay. <laughs> of course. Thank you, Dr. Arreaza. Right. Thank you so much. I uh, have a good <laughs> night. Bye bye. Have a good night. Bye. Now we conclude our episode number 45, Osteoporosis Update. Dr. Linares explained what the FRAX score is and mentioned the different options we have for treatment of osteoporosis. DEXA scan continues to be the gold standard for screening, diagnosis, and monitoring of osteoporosis. We will announce the winner of the question of the month about polyarthralgia next week, and we wish our new group of residents a great start in July 2021. Remember, even without trying, Every night, you go to bed being a little wiser. Thanks for listening to Rio Bravo Q Week. If you have any feedbacks about this podcast, please contact us by email at rbresidency at clinicaservista.org or visit our website at riobravofmrp.org backslash qweek. This podcast was created with educational purposes only. Please visit your primary care physician for additional medical advice. This week, we thank Hector Ariaza, Maria Linares, and Claudia Carranza. Audio by Saraja Murthia. See you next week.